also have like all sorts of fetuses in jars, any kind that you want. I got a raccoon penis bone Wait, there. Wait, wouldn't it be feti? I don't know. Fetuses? Octopuses? Yeah, but does fetus Greek or Latin? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> that is Wait, should we test the sounds? Make sure it's good. Oh, yeah. Like, should we pause and listen? Yeah. I appreciate it's about you, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that what you appreciate about me? It's what I appreciate about you. About skews. Hi, everybody. About yous. Hi. This is not Letterkenny. No. This is Science and Podcast. Yes. Welcome back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm here. I'm Madison. I'm also here, and I'm Jared. Here we are in a smaller room. Um, and as per usual, we're going to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. Yes, we are. AKA, we have um, a piece of paper with new science on it, and we've broken it down, and we're going to tell you all about it. And we're also going to share fun facts that have nothing to do with it. And we're going to tell stupid jokes. Amazing stupid jokes. The best stupid jokes you've ever heard in your life. Pretty much, yeah. So strap in, friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so Madison, you have the paper this week. I do. I have the paper. Um, and my paper this week is titled Dynamic Visualization of Million Tip Trees. Whoa. Million Tip Trees. Yeah. That sounds like a ninja technique. It's pretty lit. Uh, It's compiled by Yan Wang of the Big Data Institute at the University of Oxford in the UK and James Rosendell at the Department of Life Sciences, Sillowood Park Campus at the Imperial College in London, also in the UK. Okay. This is also ending like a five-episode streak of you not naming authors, I think. I know. This one only has two, so I can (laughs) actually tell you who they are. Well, there you go. Whew. Just two lads. Lads in, in England, I think. Yeah, London's in England. Sure, yeah. I always get scared when it's the UK because there's <laughs> there's politics about that place. Well, we have all the new versions of their places. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Here in New England, like literally every town in New England is like a, a new town. Which explains why Worcester is spelled like Worcestershire. Worcester. Worcester. Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Anyway, um, <laughs> this paper was published in the journal Methods in Ecology and Evolution on December 13th, 2021. But it's still fresh enough for us here in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. Faux show. Plus time is a flat circle, so who knows? Yeah, pretty much. Um, It's also not really like the normal type of study that we do on this podcast. It's not like a abstract methods and blah, 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 like scientific study. It's more of like a a release of like, look at this cool thing we made. It's super cool. Uh, Here it is. Interesting. You'll see. You'll see. (laughs) Okay. Let's do some fun facts. Oh, okay. Uh, You want to go first? Um... Yes, I will go first. My fun fact I found while looking for articles to do. And as we discussed last week, sometimes I just type random words into the search bar on Eureka Alert. And so I typed in gay because I'm interested in all things gay. And I found an article, which I'm not covering today, but about a species of fish that the males of the species are like 50% of the time are bisexual. And the bisexual males actually reproduce more often than the like non-bisexual, the heterosexual males of the species, because the ladyfish, when they see the homosexual behavior in the males, like they get ideas, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I wish you would expand on that, but I guess we'll talk about it. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could cover that one if you want, but like it's behind a paywall, but oh. from the abstract, that's what I've got. <laughs> Goddamn sci I know. In time. In time. Yeah. Um, so that was my fun fact. Love it. Yeah. Bisexual I- fish. They do well for themselves. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's fantastic to know. Yeah. Uh, I also found my fun fact when l looking for papers. Um, I guess it's a two-part fun fact, because the first fun fact is that wild hedgehogs in Denmark have MRSA. Uh, oh, no! Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So it means don't touch them. It definitely means don't touch them. Yeah. Um, but what's really cool is that uh, a, a group of scientists did a study on the bacteria that are... I think staph's a bacteria, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Staphylococcus. Anything with, like, a caucus in the genus It's a rod-shaped bacteria. It is. It is. Um, they actually looked at the molecular clock of the bacteria that were inhabiting those hedgehogs, and they found that the presence on the hedgehogs actually predates, uh, by about 200 years, the uh, widespread use of antibiotics. So... This actually does make a lot of sense when you, when you consider that all of our antibiotics are derived from natural uh, chemicals, and if fungi in nature or anything in nature are using these chemicals to fight out bacteria, of course bacteria are naturally going to find resistances to these uh, in the wild. So, so it, do it does... So, I'm sorry. So hedgehogs had this antibiotic-resistant bacteria before we had antibiotics to be resistant to. Yes. Hedgehogs were just plotting our demise over in Denmark this whole time? Yes, exactly. Okay, yep, that's what I got from that. <laughs> so, it's actually super terrifying, because it kind of raises implications of how bad we're actually making things with the whole superbug crisis, because if these resistance genes are already present in the wild, then we're just amplifying it by putting more out there. Cool. Yeah, because all of our antibiotics, pretty <sighs> much all of them, uh, are synthesized from natural stuff. Yeah, they sure are. Mm -hmm. Um, well, that's terrifying. Yeah. Hmm. I don't like it. Well, you told me your paper was happy, so I figured... My paper is happy. <laughs> um, so forget about those hedgehogs. Think about the gay fish. And the hedgehogs I'm are about fine. to tell you. Oh, like, the hedgehogs are fine? Oh, yeah. MRSA doesn't do that. anything to them. Maybe if we evolved chitinous spines all over our bodies, we'd be fine, too. I think they're keratin. Either way. <laughs> <laughs> that makes more sense. They're mammals. Yeah, Why no. would they have chitinous spines? <laughs> I'm so silly. Okay. Um... <laughs> So those are our fun facts. They have nothing to do with the rest of the episodes. If you liked those, you still might not like what's <laughs> <laughs> But I think you might. Oh, Especially funny. if you like biology. Love, love uh, some biology. Evolution. Love me some evolution. Living things. Love living things. Yeah, so let's crack into it. Let's do it. All right, essentially what's being unveiled here is a tool that allows anyone on the planet with an internet connection to access a virtual tree of life that maps the connections between every species that has been described by science. Oh. I'm going to show it to you. Interesting. It's very cool. How are they, how are they doing? How, how, mm. With big data. I have questions. <laughs> and AI. Um, so I'm going to show it to you. We're going to play with it. Okay. We're going to talk all about it. Okay. But first, the jargon corner. Oh, I forgot about the jargon corner. The jargon corner is where we pull out the spicy science words of an article and we break them down so mm -hmm. that no one gets confused. Spicy is a word we use to dress them up because they're boring. They're boring. That's correct. Um, so, first of all, Jared should not clap on a podcast. <laughs> Especially right into the microphone. <laughs> Sorry. Pete's even more of a second time. Vocal stim. Okay. Jared, what is the Big Bang Theory? I feel like this is a trick question. It's not. Like, the one everyone knows? I mean, I would argue probably more people know the sitcom than the actual theory. That's an unfortunate true point. Yeah. So. Uh, the Big Bang Theory is uh, a theory based on the fact that everything is sort of, like, 
expanding outwards in an outward direction, and that would heavily imply that our universe began with a explosion larger than anyone could possibly comprehend. Yes, exactly. So when Jared says everything is expanding, literally everything, like the whole universe, like mm-hmm. not not us, we're not slowly expanding, but like the soup that we live in is. <laughs> Ooh, that's until, of course, uh, the universe will or will not end in heat death where everything stops because it no longer has the energy to expand forward and all heat in the universe dies. Yes, the inevitable heat death of the universe. Mm-hmm. If you've ever played Cards Against Humanity, that is what that card is referring to. Yeah. Um, but... We're trying to be happy here, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So, um, first of all, do you know when the Big Bang happened, allegedly? Mm, 36 odd billion years ago? No. No? 13.8. Why was I thinking 36? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But about, yeah, 13.8 billion years ago. So a little less than 14 billion. And just to remind everyone, a billion is a thousand million. Yeah. It's not just like a little more than a million. It's a thousand million. So this is... All of the time that has ever happened. Yeah. The Earth, by the way, is estimated to be about 4.6 billion years old. There you go. So it's the leading theory for how the whole universe began. And to put it very simply, the universe as we know it started with an infinitely hot and infinitely tiny and dense single point that you could have held on the tip of your pinky if pinkies existed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then there was a massive explosive expansion an unimaginable speed, an unmeasurable rate, and over the next 13.8 billion years, that point just kept expanding and is still expanding into the cosmos that we know today. And they call it a bang because it was so explosive that it went faster than the speed of light. And basically all of the matter, about 98% of the matter and energy that we can perceive in the universe was created in just... Well, less than a tenth of a second. Wow. Yeah. And ever since then, it's just been drifting out and recombining and crashing into itself and forming novel elements every once in a while, (laughs) 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 including, yeah, the basic ingredients for life, which then landed on our planet, as Jared said, uh, after it was created about 14 billion years ago. I didn't say that, but I will take credit for it. Four billion years ago. Oh, I didn't say that. Yeah, I just put wrong words in your mouth, but yeah. (laughs) Um, How do we know that this happened? We don't. But most people agree with it because there's a bunch of math, um, math formulas and models that all agree and point to this. And also astronomers can see what they call um, the cosmic microwave background, which is basically the echo of when light was created. Also brings to mind just like the Milky Way sitting inside a microwave. And that's what's interesting to me. I'd wear that on a t-shirt, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I would, too. Yeah. Let's get that. Mm-hmm. Let's, that's the first Psypod t-shirt. Well, there you go. <laughs> just the Milky Way to microwave. That's my brain. <laughs> <laughs> All right, which brings us to life on Earth. How did that start? I, well, uh, geez. Um, I mean, we don't really know for sure, but there are several competing thingies. Uh, my favorite is the primordial soup, just because of how it sounds. Yeah. Uh, which is that there was a lot of, like, lightning and just, like, kinetic energy and shit, and it just, like, zapped a lot of different uh, uh, elements together that eventually formed organic mo- molecules that were able to self-replicate, and uh, so on, so on. It's very exciting! Yeah. Um, that's my favorite one, and I don't remember any of the others, so... Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's that's my favorite one, too. Um... That's a good, that's like a theory of how life started in the universe, not specific to Earth, necessarily. Really? 
Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, anyway. The way I learned it was, like, all the lightning on Earth. But I, oh, could, really? I, I could be totally wrong about that. Oh, cool. See, there's a lot of theories about how life began on Earth. We really don't know, mm-hmm. which is crazy. It's like, oh, there's also one that an asteroid uh, exactly, not organic yeah. molecules that were on Mars uh, into Earth, which is called the panspermia hypothesis. And yeah. that, I don't like the sound of that one. Well, it has the word sperm in it. <laughs> panspermia. Sperm is everywhere. Ew. Uh, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. Um, but anyway, it's possible that the origin of life on Earth... Um, was like created by an asteroid or a bunch of asteroids or comets, comets or giant storms, like a rain of storms on Earth. And however it got there, somehow the materials got onto this rock that allowed life to form. And as far as we know, life seems to have formed between 3.5 and 3.8 billion years ago. So yeah, that's life on Earth. Love it. That's how it got there. We really don't know, but we kind of know. There you go. Um, also, there were, like, three to five billion years of, like, pretty much, like, really boring life on Earth. I read something recently about that not necessarily being the case. <gasps> the boring billion busted? Uh-huh. Oh, that's a great headline. I sense a new episode coming. <laughs> All right, so since life got on Earth um, around 3.8 billion years ago, what's been happening since? How come we're not all soup anymore? Oh, a lot of stuff. Um... Are you asking me to explain it? Yeah, the next thing in the jargon corner is the theory of evolution. Oh. So I was hoping you would just, like, arrive there organically <laughs> by that question that I just asked. Well, there's, there's a lot of space between. I guess, Ken, what is the low... What is the basis form of life that you can apply evolution to? I guess viruses, right? Oh, I, let's not bring viruses into this. I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean... Evolution applies to all life forms. It does, but like, like can it apply to like a prion, which is a protein that that self replicates? Yeah, I think so, because that was the first thing that was there, and eventually we got here. Okay, so, so you're basically asking me to describe natural selection. That's the next thing in the jargon. <laughs> yeah, what's natural selection? So ev- um, evolution, I guess, I guess I should describe that first. Um, yeah. is basically the change in um frequencies of genes over time. It's not forward. It doesn't have a direction. It's just your genetics change because of genes coming into you horizontally, uh, which means that basically uh, there's viruses and bacteria that can enter your DNA and become you. Um, What a terrifying way of explaining the theory of evolution. Thanks, Jared. Well, well, that's only horizontal evolution. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) How I would explain it (laughs) is, so living things are driven by the impulse to replicate, to reproduce. We're all trying to do it, except for me, but that's different. Um, <laughs> and then some people like to say that, is it us or is it our genes? The selfish um, gene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So living things are driven to replicate, whether that's through asexual reproduction, just copying themselves, or sexual reproduction. <laughs> Everyone does it. And the other thing that every living thing does is mutate randomly and sometimes not randomly. Um, there are variations in our genes, in the stuff that makes us, and we pass on those mutations to our offspring or our clones, and through that gradual variation and mutation, things change. Mm -hmm. And as things change, certain things work better in certain places, and they stay over there, and then um, suddenly the things over there are really, really different from where they started, and they can't reproduce with each other anymore, and then they just keep on sowing their wild oats until we have 2.2 million species. Yeah. 
And, and then what, and then what's also fun is that sometimes things change really, really fast, geologically speaking, which yes. which is also awesome. But yes, yeah. so not only are living things always trying to replicate and are always mutating and changing randomly, the world around them is also always changing. Change is the only constant in the universe, and as things change, those living things deal with it and or don't, <laughs> and the ones that deal with it best pass on their genes. And that's how we get speciation. Also, sometimes the ones that just literally fuck the best. Yeah. Sexual selection. Sexual selection. Peacocks. <laughs> um, it's crazy. There's a Wait, lot of... Wait, have you ever seen a stock-eyed fly? A stock-eyed fly? So, uh, Do I want to? <laughs> yes. Uh, stock-eyed flies are a peacock-like uh, insect. Uh, the females have continued to select males based on the length that their eyes sit away from their head. And so you have these flies that just look like fucking boomerangs. Okay. Oh. See, this is the kind of stuff you get with natural selection. What well, sexual selection? Yes, sorry, sexual selection, which is not the same as natural selection, but and it can is actually part of and, evolution. And can actually compete with it, which is so fun. Yes, it can. Like, like male peacocks do not fly well because they, their tail fans are so ridiculously they can long. Barely fly. Mm -hmm. um, but that's part of the reason that sexual selection works because, like, a male peacock, it's so colorful and so bad at living. It must be really, really strong and like to be able to survive at all. And so they picked that one. Oh my God, Jared just showed me. It looks like a hammerhead, <laughs> but it's a fly. Jesus. Yeah, I love one. Gross. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're probably not doing the best job of explaining the theory of evolution. <laughs> Is that what we were doing? Uh, we were trying, um, but. Okay, let's, let's break it down in three sentences. Evolution. Gene frequencies and gene flavors change. That's that's your whole explanation? No, I should probably do that more, more than once. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Evolution. You make babies, babies different because genes change over time. Living things. They want to reproduce. They do. They have a bunch of babies. And all those babies are a little bit different because of mutations. And then um, a new mountain range springs up and some of the babies are really good at climbing and the other ones aren't. The ones that are good at climbing, they climb the mountain, they make a bunch of mountain climbing babies. The ones that aren't, they go into the ocean, they make a bunch of swimming babies, and now we have fish and mountain goats. Yeah. Natural selection. Natural selection. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, you get it. Um, yeah. And who was the dude who is famous for popularizing this theory? Charles Darwin. That's right. Also, uh, Alfred, Alfred, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was in... Who was a, by all intents and purposes, a crazy person. Uh, mm -hmm. He, him and Charles Darwin kind of bounced ideas off each other. Yes, they sure did. Also, Lamarck yeah. predated them and was wrong about a lot of things, but was right about evolution, just wrong about the mechanism of it. Yeah, I think Wallace genuinely believed in the existence of angels. So did Darwin. Shit, did he? Yeah, he went to, um, uh, what's it called? Priest school. I don't remember what it's called, but... I do remember when he was talking about a certain family of parasitic wasps, uh, he was quoted in saying, uh, no uh, benevolent god could have created what these things do to other... An insect that does these things to other animals. Yeah, he talks about God a lot. I mean, his final paragraph in On the Origin of Species talks about God. He says, Damn. you know, God created the first creatures, and ever since then, evolution is how it's been happening. Which is like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, sure. We don't is that really what to believe, though? Or did he have to cleanse his ideas slightly to make them palatable to the scientific, even, even the scientific public of his age? I'm not sure. You know? Yeah. He, you know? He seemed to be a pretty God-fearing man, so. Fair enough. And he lived in the 1800s. There was no internet. <laughs> he didn't know. Um, but yeah. me off from a pigeon. Um, so the first thing that we have, if you picture evolution, 
that one baby having more babies, it branches out like a tree. And the first time it was ever written out like that was by Charles Darwin in one of his notebooks when he was on the Beagle going to the Galapagos. And he wrote a little tree with a couple finches. And then he wrote, I think, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) And from then we have now... I love it because it's a very badly drawn tree. It's so terrible. like I could have done that. Yeah, it's terrible. I love it. I want it tattooed on my butt. Um, or somewhere. But anyway, from that, now, zoom forward 200 years, we have a website with an actual tree representing that same concept, but with all species known to humans. All species of anything. Yeah. Including viruses? No. Oh. Viruses aren't on there because we don't know. Well, that's fine. We don't know about them. Yeah. We're just going to leave them out of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So out of the dragon corner and into the soup of this article. So this project is called the One Zoom Tree of Life Project. One Zoom. One Zoom. To end them all. And (laughs) the project started in 2011. The project started in 2011 when two friends and biology nerds named James Rosendell and Luke Harmon, different person, you'll notice, than the person who published, um, hmm. we're actually walking the grounds at Darwin's downhouse in England. So, a house that Darwin lived in. Okay. <clears throat> so, they were both in school for data science, and they were discussing the possibilities for big data in the way that college students do, where they're just like, technology is advancing, imagine all of the stuff that we can do. And they were really excited about the fact that data could be stored by modern, modern computers much more efficiently than by the human brain. Computers could store more information than one person ever could, but no one in 2011 had ever figured out how to visualize those large data sets that humans can't conceptualize in any sort of way that the public can actually understand. Right. So it was all theoretical. And these guys were talking, and the first idea was to create a mind map so vast that it could contain all human knowledge. Can't do that. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) But from that very noble, ambitious goal. I guess it's good to start big. And yeah. You know, whittle it down a little bit, make it uh, better, possible to do. Yes. So from <laughs> that very, very ambitious goal, they came up with the basic formula for how they were going to do this, which was laying it out in ever smaller bubbles using a fractal structure and a zooming interface so that the computer never can run out of space to put information in no matter how much there is. Whoa. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So there's this idea, and they were really jazzed about it, and they're just sort of shooting the shit, kind of like you and I do. (laughs) Like, imagining all of the things they could do, but they were at Darwin's house, and so as they were discussing this, these fractals, these bubbles, this infinite zoom, they came across an illustration of that tree. I think. And they were like, you know what? (laughs) Would be easier (laughs) than all known information to the human mind, what if we just created a tree of life? And we did it like that. The bubbles, the zooming, the interface. And that was an idea that really took off. So James initially worked on coding the one zoom, this idea for this layout during his spare time while he was working on his PhD and all this kind of stuff. And much like Darwin corresponded with other scientists of his time, he corresponded with Luke and other researchers. And he actually ended up turning this sort of pipe dream with his friend into a PhD project at the Imperial College in London. Wow. Which then caught attention and became funded by um, the Natural Environmental Research Council. 
And that got the attention of a science broadcaster in the UK named Yan Wong. <clears throat> and his mission is bridging the gap between the public and science, you know, helping people understand. And so he saw this idea and had so many ideas for all of the applications that could be used for. And once he got on board, things really started zooming. And now 10 years later, it exists. Damn. Yeah. So these gents have made their dream a reality. And today, the One Zoom Tree of Life is free and accessible to anyone with an internet connection, even if you have like a shitty old generation phone. Rad. Yeah. And... People are calling it now the Google Earth of Biology. It just got released in December. Oh, that's recent as hell. Yeah. I'm going to show it to you. Yeah, let's take a look at it. It's super cool. And also, listeners, you can find it too. It's literally onezoom.org. O-N-E-Z-O-O-M dot O-R-G. And there it is. It's like Zoom, but like with one in front of it. Yes. Onezoom.org. So, here's the website. And this isn't the interesting part, so... (laughs) Let me, <laughs> let me show you the actual tree. All right. I like that. Yeah. So oh, oh, let me zoom oh, all the way out. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's the whole thing. Do they even have Luca? They have everything. God damn. Let me twist it so you can see it. So, uh, hey. So, <laughs> so Luca, the last universal common ancestor would be right there at the base. Yep. There you go. So it's the tree of all life. You can also change. So the what you'll see it looking like is like a curly, swirly tree with a bunch of branches. But you can also change it and you can make it look like a fern. <laughs> <laughs> and you can make it look like... Um, I don't like, like that. that. I don't like that. <laughs> It's just a bunch of fans. Why would they make it look awful? You can also make it a very balanced tree. Much better. You can make it, you can visualize it however you want. But the point is there's 2.2 million species represented here and you're seeing it all in one image. That's goddamn incredible. And you can zoom in. So like, let's say we wanted to look more at just the human branch of the tree of life. Oh, you can just type type in human, homo sapien. It takes us on a little tour and we're zooming. And we're zooming down all the branches. Oh, that's so pleasing to see. Isn't it? It just keeps going. Yeah. So we're in mammals, monkeys, apes, hominids, and here we are, humans. And you can see that our closest two relatives on the tree right now are the chimpanzee and the bonobo. Little bonobo guy. Yeah. That's fantastic. You can see that our most recent common ancestor with chimpanzees and bonobos lived six million years ago. God damn. During the Neogene period. This must have taken so... I guess it did take so much took time. took 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the amount of work that must have went into this. Yes. Although they were very clever and were able to find a way to make computers and AI do a lot of the work for them. Well, that's smart in itself. Yes. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So yeah, this is the tree, essentially. And there's a bunch of cool stuff that we can do with it. We're going to play with it later. But first, I want to tell you more about it. <laughs> Go for it. Ooh, just zooming out. Look at it. Okay, sorry. As Jared and I have just seen, but you have not because this is a podcast, <laughs> it is a virtual tree that's curly and fun, and it maps the connections between 2.2 million living species, including some that are extinct. Mm. Um, it's the closest thing yet in the world to a single view of all species known to science. That's incredible. It's interactive, as you saw. It allows users to zoom in on any species and explore its relationship with other species. Each of the leaves on the tree um, 
are actually color-coded depending on their risk, risk of extinction. Oh. So did you notice what color the chimpanzees and the bonobos were? Red. Exactly. Because they're on the red list. Yep, they're on the IUCN red list, which yeah. means they are vulnerable to extinction in the near future. So it's literally coded that way. There are other ways you can code it, too, though. You can code it by how popular they are as oh. far as internet searches. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a bunch of stuff that you can do to manipulate it. Um, so green is for not threatened, red is for threatened, and black is for recently extinct. Damn. However, most of the leaves on the tree are gray. What do you think that means? Not evaluated. Exactly. Because um, scientists don't have enough data to know the extinction risk of every single species. And mm -hmm. so that's a nice representation of how much work there is to be done in science. Yeah, the description of the vast majority of species of anything ends at their morphological, maybe sometimes DNA description. Exactly. So there is only a fraction of species that we know about have been studied or have a known risk of extinction. There is so much more work to do, which is really inspiring. And so let's say you're a young kid, like a young biology student, you're like, what species should I study? Go to the tree of life. Find one that's gray. Go to the gray ones. Yeah. Do they have AI that's like actively updating it in mm -hmm. terms of like status? Do they also have things that are adding new species as they're described? Yep. Cool. Yep. They literally have their fingers in the whole internet. That's awesome. It's so cool. It's so freaking cool. Okay. And in addition to being an open access tool for curious nerds like me and Jared <laughs> and you listeners, um, the site is also a functioning nonprofit. Oh. Which allows users to sponsor any of the leaves, so any of the organisms on the tree, add a message about why that species is important to them, and then the money that they contribute contributes to the Foundation's mission of spreading awareness about all of our relatives on this planet and how we can work together to prevent extinction. So they pay money to add a little message into the little thing? Yeah, you can add a little message on one of the leaves. I think science and podcasts should do it. I think we should. It's like naming our own star. Yeah, but yeah. we got to pick which species. I don't know. Coelacanth, obviously. Oh, I wonder if coelacanth is taken. Oh my god, I'm looking oh, right now. Lobefinned fishes. Coelacanth. It is sponsored Damn. by Tan Wong. Damn it, Tan. Oh, wait. Oh, Yan Wong. Wait, that's the guy who made the. Oh, man. Literally the we guy who made it. <laughs> that's how you know he's a homie. We have more ideas. Damn. <laughs> he was like, I know which one you all want and I'm taking it. <laughs> oh, very cool. That's kind of funny. Very cool. Also, when you click on them, it pulls up their Wikipedia page. Wow. <laughs> that's rad. Isn't it cool? All right, anyway. So Jared and I cannot sponsor the coelacanth, but listeners, <laughs> tell us, who do you want us to sponsor? Maybe we'll set up a thing. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but yeah, so it's a functioning charity. And oh, the other really cool thing about it, as someone who's worked in other environmental nonprofits, is they also configured it to work with any sort of touchscreen. And they've made the software to work on touchscreens free to download and use by educational organizations like museums, zoos, aquariums. That's awesome. For free. No strings attached. Fantastic. Right? Yeah, so they really hope that people will use it at educational institutions, at schools, at museums, everywhere. Use it really creatively. My living room. Yeah. On podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> They've also included this really cool, unique um, screenshotting option that lets users create tours of the tree. So you can, like, create a little video. Oh, wow. Yeah, so for example, um, someone at an aquarium could create a tour to show audiences how humans are related to fish through Tiktaalik. Oh. Yeah. Love that shit. Yeah. It's really cool. Someone do that, please. Um, <laughs> what would you create a tour of on the Tree of Life, Jared? I w Ooh, that's a good question. I would probably have to do something that still still does, doesn't get enough attention in my eyes, uh, which is the connection between birds and dinosaurs. Oh, that's a good one. So, could do like... 
birds. Or let's see if dinosaurs are on here. I wonder. Look, I, I would hope so. Or you're going to make some kids mad. Well, it's supposed to be only extant species. And oh! Yeah. Well, that, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we don't find dinosaurs, but are, is is bird there? Birds birds are there. Babies. Lovely. Burps! Let's see what they're next to. Do, 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 do. Okay, go out a little bit. Do they have them next to the reptiles? Yes, <gasps> they do! Oh, I love it! All right. Birds, turtles, and crocodilians. That'd be a cool tour. Love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, so back to uh, me telling you about the thing. <laughs> so in the words of Dr. Rosendell, who is one of the creators, with one Zoom, we hope to give people a completely new way to appreciate evolutionary history and the vastness of life on Earth and all its beauty. Poetic. I enjoyed that. Right? He's a poetic guy. Um, I created a poem. <laughs> Not a poem, but um, this is what it got me thinking about hmm. when I was exploring this thing. So they've created a family tree, essentially, that includes all of our relatives that live on this planet, right? Hmm. And then it gets me thinking of, like, if you had the option, if someone was like, hey, I'm going to make a family tree that includes all of your relatives, like, how far out would you care about? I would have to go further than... I wouldn't even include the humans in it. I would have to go to, like, some distantly related mammal that's not a primate. Right? Yeah, I'm going to go out and out. I feel like most people, when they think of a family tree, they think of, like, grandma, grandpa, cousins, yes. aunts, uncles. And, like, it's really cool when you explore Ancestry.com and you learn the people you're related to. And then, like, for example, like, when I was looking at my ancestry, I learned that I'm related to somebody who was um, hanged in the witch trials. Wow. And then I was like... Wow, and I got really interested in the rich witch trials. So, like, family trees have a way of connecting you to other people or other beings that oh, you might not otherwise care about, right? Yeah. So, this is like a family tree, but it's not specific to any one person. It has all of the humans together and shows us all of our relatives and how it's laid out. So just, I just, think... just don't do it by the popularity option because you're only going to get mammals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it has, you know having this be a tool like Google Earth opens up the possibility of people caring a lot more about the other animals on the planet because they're seeing them as kin, you know, as right, relatives yeah. instead of as humans versus animals. You know, it's a very different view than what you get from like a traditional, like biblical upbringing, for example. Um, We're all cousins on this big old rock. Exactly. Exactly. We're all in the same fam. And if you think about it in terms of the universe, we're all really closely related. Yeah. Cause there might not be another, us. There might not be. Fermi's paradox, right? Which yeah, I exactly. think about every night. <laughs> I'm like, what if we're the only place where living things happen? That's well, I was talking in terms of like life as we don't know it. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. We might be the only place where life like this exists. Exactly. Yeah. And but... in fact, that's likely. Good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's squirrels on other planets. Oh, I hope there are. I hope so too. Anyway, 14 billion <laughs> years ago, <laughs> everything that would ever exist was held in a point smaller than a fleck of dust. And then... A little less than 14 billion years ago, something set that point in motion, and there was that massive explosion that we talked about, and that turned into like this ever-expanding soup of hot tiny particles mixed with light and energy that were colliding and fragmenting and recombining into more stars and planets than you could ever count or imagine. But we're on this one, this little one, and in all of that chaos, 3.7 billion years ago, on this rock... Matter and energy somehow recombined into something that could replicate itself and mutate 
And that was our oldest known ancestor, like our great, great grandpa. And he's on this tree. So he's like the first, <laughs> he's like the, the, why is he a he? She's like, <laughs> she's like the trunk of the tree. And then very similarly to how the universe began from that one came many. And after another few billion years, our earliest ancestors basically covered every surface on this rock. And then they started competing, <laughs> but also collaborating and mutating and diversifying into millions of different forms, each more complex than the last, and all for some reason that we still don't understand, driven to continue until two of them decided to do a little ancestry project and map out how we're all related. And now we have this tool where we can see it all. <laughs> like, that took 14 billion years to evolve. It took these guys 10 years. <laughs> And now we can observe it in seconds just by, like, moving our fingers on a keyboard. God fucking damn technology. Right? Yeah, man. Like, it may be a hard time to be alive right now. You know, there's a pandemic ravaging our species, which is, feels personal. <laughs> and <laughs> there's climate change, which sucks. And we're in a mass extinction. And systems seem to be failing us all around us. But never before in the history of our planet has it been this easy to learn about where we came from, where we are in the universe our relationships to everyone and everything else that's here. And it's really incredible to me that we have access to all of this information that's literally translated for us and our five senses in this squishy pink brain thing. <laughs> and we can have it at our fingertips, even if we're not rich or powerful. That's an important part. Yeah. Yeah. We have a family tree that everyone can access that shows us 2.2 million relatives and how they're doing. <laughs> It shows us the conservation status, too. Just don't zoom in on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing that does separate it from, like, Google Earth, is that you can't, like, zoom in and find somebody, like, taking a shit in their lawn. <laughs> Which is a plus. Like, it is like, a, that's plus. a plus. <laughs> it is a plus. It's an improvement. <laughs> so do you want to play with it? Yeah, I want to play with it. Okay. So, give me the name of an animal, any animal, and I can tell you how you're related to it. This is a very broad question. I'm going to say octopus. Octopus. All right. Let's see. Octopus. This. Clickety clackety. Here we go. There she is. We're zooming out. Well, that, that wasn't completely very far. Here she is. You can watch her. <laughs> now, we're, now we're going pretty far. All right. I like so how it like, have... travels down one vine and goes down the other one, though. Yeah. So that was a specific octopus that it showed us. But we oh, have we're... lots of octopuses. We have ooh, the coleoids. Ooh, ooh. There we go. All right. So it's in the octopodes family, which is in the octopodiforms, which also includes squid, which is in the, what'd you say? Coleoidea. Coleoidea. Now, here's the other cool thing that you can do with this. Excuse me. Oh, there we go. Okay, so octopus. Oops, I spelled octopus wrong. Poctopus. Poctopus. Octopus. Okay. And, excuse me, human. You can trace a path and oh, then wow. it shows you and it color codes it. So you oh, can look and you can see your most recent common ancestor, which, would which be in the case nephrozoa. of nephrozoa, nephrozoa. So a, I think that translates to animals with kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So if anyone was wondering um, how closely related us humans are to octopuses, 
Our most recent common ancestor lived 560 million years ago during the Ediacaran period. Ediacaran. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can't read, but... um, And also, there are 1,407,146 species alive today that also share that same common ancestor. Wow. Cool, right? Yeah, it's humbling. Yeah, so octopuses and humans... Our last common ancestor is also the last common ancestor between octopuses and birds, for example. Oh, interesting. Cool, right? And jumping spiders, I see there. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. What's the next question I was going to ask you? Oh, yeah. Pick a plant. Mm, Rafflesia. How do you spell that plant? <laughs> How do you spell that? Uh, R-A-F-F-L-E-S-I-A. R-A-F-F. Help. <laughs> oh, there it is. Rafflesius? Rafflesia. Uh, yes. Rafflesia. This is the one where its flowers can be heavier than a human baby. Oh, that crazy thing. All right. So we zoom out. You can see we're all together through the Archaea, through the Deepan group, through the Archaeal group, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we split off um, right at 2.2 can... 2 million years ago when eukaryotes split off from Podiata. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I did hope it would show a picture of Wilfrisa, but... Oh well, it God, will if we go if we go down that road. Where is it? Yeah. Oh, there so it we is. we can go to her. There she is. Here she is. She's a flowering plant. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. All right. She is a pentapelatele. <laughs> five petals, maybe? I, I, oh, I think it does have five petals. She is a rosid, a fabid... A, whatever that is, <laughs> can't pronounce most of these words. She is also a malpigiali, piggy dippin'. <laughs> there she, there she is, all the way at the bottom. She's oh, there's a lot of them, and there she is. Oh, there's a lot of different reflesia. Oh, that's rad. And there's her picture. That's really cool. Corpse flower. And then we can click on our Wikipedia page, and yeah. Big as a baby. There we go. Smells like a dead baby. A parasitic flowering plant endemic to Borneo, named after botanist William Price, who discovered the species on Mount Kinabalu Kinabalu in the 1960s. That's so cool that it just like has all that stuff right there. Yeah. Just in seconds. So cool. Alright, now pick a fungus. <laughs> uh ooh, pick a fungus. Dead man's fingers. Yes. Although that's a coral, isn't it? No. It might be. It's also a coral. <laughs> You have to find the one that's a fungus. Um, it is the Xylaria one. Xylaria polymorphia. Also known as Dead Man's Fingers. Let's find how closely related Jared is to Dead Man's Fingers. <laughs> zoom, zoom, zoom. Oh, all right. Oh, cool. Much more closely related to Dead Man's Fingers than you are to that flower. Which just makes sense because of the whole not mm-hmm. making my own food thing. 1.35 million years ago is the last common ancestor that we had with this fungus. Excuse me. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and the scientific name of this group, Opisticonta. That's a fun name. I enjoy yes, that. Yes, it is. Cool. During the... Can we sponsor Excuse me. all of the Opisticonta? <laughs> yeah, we can. Look. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, 13 
1.35 million years ago during the Ectasian. Ectasian? Ectasian, I would guess. During the Ectasian or Ectasian period, the most common ancestor to that fungus and you and I lived. And there are 1.7 million about other species who share that common ancestor. Like a little cauliflower coral. Yeah, and um, and the octopus is there. That's definitely a parasite in the bottom right corner. He it, looks kind of cool. Sea walnut. <laughs> <laughs> All sorts of them. All right. So I think we've played with it enough, probably. Do you want to know how they made it? Sure. All right. So I'm going to preface this section by saying um, they made it with coding and math. And <laughs> I do not understand a single ounce of that world. That's all right. I did my best, but this section will be highly summarized. Um, I have an arts degree. <laughs> okay. So there are three layers to this tool, which are the external data, the server-side processing, and the client-side viewer. First, the external data. Um, so they literally pull from all existing data that has to do with biology, taxonomy, for any of these species. They go into the internet, they have a million little, I don't know what you even call them, tags that they're always monitoring, right. that this AI is monitoring, and they're collected from multiple sources. They only use sources that are freely available. So if you're wondering why fleas are in the wrong place, maybe it's an open access issue. I don't know. Next comes the server-side processing. And this is the really complex part. It organizes the data and uh, compresses it into metadata, which is like data about data. Yeah. That's easier to store. <laughs> like a pancake. If you squish it more, it fits in your pocket. Yeah. Um, the way but, they describe it. But if you had all the individual flavors and, and ingredients, you couldn't fit all those in your pocket. You turn them into a pancake, and then you can put that pancake in your pocket. The way that I found it described on the internet that worked best for me was Did that like, not work for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it worked for our listeners, though. So an elephant is huge, right? Could right. you fit that anywhere? Well, anywhere, yeah. <sighs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of falls apart there. An elephant is huge, right? Could you fit an elephant in your pocket? No. Could you fit a note telling you what an elephant is in your pocket. I could do that. Yeah, so the note is the metadata, the elephant is the data. So the metadata is like, we have this tree with all of these pictures, but they're not all out right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so anyway. I am getting this. It's organized and compressed in a way that computers can understand, but people cannot. Right, because they can talk in zeros and ones, so we can't. Exactly. They got their binary thing. I'm non-binary. It's whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's something that humans could never do by hand. This is something that by definition has to be done by an AI because there's just too much data out there on the internet about organisms. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. That's something that can only happen in the last decade, which is why it did. Then to translate that data web into a format that humans can perceive, which is the real miracle of this thing, is they actually created an online application programming interface or API which is served using the Web2PY framework and primarily written in Python v3. I do not know what that means. <laughs> well, Python's a snake. The, not this one. And also a coding language. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, it's a language. It's a whole ass, like data and coding people. This is, if you want to come on and tell me what I'm talking about, please do. <laughs> um, but the way I understand it is this allows the data to then be accessed by the client side viewer, which is the tree 
which is written in ECMA script, compiled to JavaScript, and is thus usable in any modern web browser. Wow. You just unzip it. You just there. unzip it. Um, the core data, the core source data is from an older project called the Open Tree Project, which biology students created in 2015. Um, it's an automated standardization of plant names. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's like why it's a, here. The coolest thing about the data part of this is why it's a tree. Um, so I'm going to say it the way that they said it first. Here we go. The topological relationships between taxa have a compact encoding that, when coupled with a visualization method, uniquely determines the geometry of a phylogenetic tree. In human words, <laughs> the relationships between all living things mathematically always form the shape of a tree without any manipulation. Right, because you could, well, I mean, yeah, if if you look at it as, like, I, I always like to think about evolution as, like, a Russian nesting doll of, like, yeah. relationships. You just open it up, and there's one thing, and then you keep mm -hmm. popping them on, and, and you can look bigger and bigger and smaller and smaller. Exactly. So, what I take that to mean is, so, <laughs> all of this, like, complex visualization, we have, like, three languages, one of them's a Python, I don't know, um, but with all of that high-tech manipulation, it comes back to what Darwin wrote in his little notebook. I think. Yeah, just a little tree. We've really come full circle. Right? Oh, he was more correct than he ever could have known in his time. <laughs> and I think that's really cool. The relationships between life on Earth are always fractal, like a tree or a river. And no matter how you bend and twist them, they will always be a tree. And I love trees. So if you came here for math and coding language, <laughs> sorry. Um, they got about 10 seconds of it. Yeah. So it's exactly the concept that we started with, <laughs> but holding more information than a single human mind could ever hold, and we can play with it as much as we want. And you have. And I have. Many, many, many times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like a playground for evolutionary biologists, conservationists, and me. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the one Zoom tree of life. Any questions? <laughs> How long was that? Four hours? <laughs> Oh, only one. Oh, only one. Okay, cool. I do feel... Uh, no. No, I asked all my questions during the thing. All right, cool. Yeah. That's it. That's cool. That's what I brought. It's a neat little trick. Thank you. I'm going to go use it when I get home. Yeah, you can play with it so many different ways. It's so much fun. Shabu! <laughs> <laughs> do you have any parting words um, for our uh, podcast guests? And just those noises. Which are the listeners? <laughs> our, our podcast guests. guests. Um, my parting words.